You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 12th of March 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster and on today's show... You've already seen a vote in this House that has said no to no deal. Um, and I think everybody needs to recognise, for those who want genuinely to deliver Brexit, that actually if this deal does not go through tonight, then this House risks no Brexit at all. Will Parliament support Theresa May's deal to get Britain out of the European Union in tonight's make-or-break vote? Not worth the effort. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says she won't back the impeachment of US President Donald Trump. My guests Lance Price and James Boyes will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Britain is the latest country to ban the Boeing 737 MAX 8 from operating in or over its airspace as a precautionary measure. And... A pilot turns his plane back during a flight from Saudi Arabia to Malaysia after a passenger forgets to collect her baby from the airport lounge. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Lance Price, the author, political commentator and former special advisor to British Prime Minister Tony Blair, and James Boyce. James is a US policy analyst and author of the book Clinton's War on Terror. So, gentlemen, welcome both of you to the programme. Now, it has been a hectic 48 hours for the British Prime Minister Theresa May. On Monday, she was in Brussels contracting a sore throat and also finalising changes to her deal to get Britain out of the European Union. Today, she finds herself battling to persuade Parliament to support her withdrawal bill in a vote scheduled for tonight. Now, the chances of a victory are looking slim and it isn't hard to see why. The DUP, that's the party propping up Mrs May's government, along with rebel MPs from her governing Conservative Party, will vote against the deal after the Attorney General said the legal risk of the UK being tied to the EU after Brexit remains unchanged. Oh dear, Lance. So do you think that Mrs May can pull a rabbit out of the hat and win this vote, or, to quote Dad's army, do you think she's doomed? <laughs> <laughs> um, she's not going to win the vote tonight. So in, in an hour's time, uh, the MPs will be trooping through the division lobbies, um, and I think there is virtually no doubt at all that she's going to face another humiliating defeat. There's a, you get a mood at Westminster um, when, uh, something, when there's a big shift uh, in the tectonic plates, and that wasn't happening today. If she was going to win, you would have had a significant number of people who voted against the deal last time coming out and saying they were going to vote for it, which would then lead others to think, oh, well, maybe she's going to win. And if she's going to win, I want to make sure I'm on the right side. Instead, the opposite has happened. So we've had the DUP, as you said, and also the European Research Group, the Swivel-Eye Brexit. Well, yes. <laughs> well, that's we, all dis- <laughs> we all have our own descriptions for them. The Swivel-Eye Brexiteers on the, on the, uh, on the extreme uh, English nationalist wing of her party have said that they can't support it. Um, and then even she had hoped, you know, she was doling out bits of money here, there and everywhere, hoping to get a few Labour MPs to support it. And they're now thinking, well, look, why would I risk my reputation with, with, with my party? and with my voters to support a deal that's already doomed. So I think 
doomed is the word. And I guess, James, the question has to be, if she's going to lose, how heavy will that defeat be? Because she's already chalked up one massive defeat. I think it was the, the most, the heaviest defeat in modern parliamentary history. So do you think we could actually have a repeat of that or might it be a little bit less humiliating? You're absolutely right. I think the big question tonight that I'm sure we'll all be looking for is is the magnitude of the defeat. I don't think it's a question of if it's going to be defeat, but the size of that and the extent to which she's going to be able to claw anything back from these negotiations to sort of say, like, we are closing the gap effectively. And you can almost try and see the the attempt to claw some degree of uh, some success out of this by saying, well, uh, you know, last time we had a vote, uh, we only we must we must fight this much. Now I've closed the gap. If we keep having these conversations and going back and back maybe we can claw something back it's never going to happen is it there simply isn't enough time there's not enough political will on either side i don't think to to get to whatever that magic number will be and i thought it was telling in the chamber today clearly the prime minister is is hoarse uh, uh, from the negotiations uh, up all night effectively you could hear it in her voice and we were talking before we came on air the suggestion that you know she's almost personifying the state of of her government at this point uh, almost seemingly on its last legs clearly not well you saw uh, i thought a lack of support amongst backbenchers for her. There was no sense of, well, the Prime Minister speaking, we must get behind her, appear on the backbenches to offer her support. The chamber was uh, very quiet, I thought, on many levels, uh, quite empty. Um, and, and there was also a sense of sympathy, I thought, for her. Mm. And I think when a Prime Minister starts getting sympathy, not only from her own backbenches, but from opposition benches, I think um, the writing appears to be on the wall. I mean, I could also see glints of silver from knives which were being held in that chamber, metaphorical knives as well, to sort of stab someone in the back to get rid of her. But I mean, look, at the end of the day, I guess that from her point of view, she could turn around and say, well, if I'm going to point the finger of blame here, it's got to be with the Attorney General, Geoffrey Cox, because really that was the that was the pin on which everything turned, his judgment. Yeah, so his judgment made it very difficult for her. He went halfway down the road that she wanted him to go by saying that uh, the deal that she's now presenting is better than it was before and that the risk of Britain being stuck in this so-called backstop had been reduced. But at the end of the day, the sting was in the tail. He said that um, the, uh, the, 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 the danger of Britain not being able to get out unilaterally was as great as it had ever been. And that pretty much killed it dead. The DUP, there was no way the DUP could then turn around and say that they were going to vote for it. And the same for the... ERG. Um, And that's partly um, what James is talking about. I mean, you could see authority draining away from her today so that even her own attorney general wasn't prepared to stick his neck out um, and say anything remotely that he didn't believe in in order to help her out. Uh, And when that starts to happen, then uh, the skids are really under her. And I think people are now seriously questioning, you were talking about the glint of of, of the knives behind her, Mm. uh, whether she can survive another really big defeat. And if she doesn't, What does that mean for the future of Brexit and for the Conservative Party and for the country? Yeah, and let's look at it in terms of the Conservative Party, James, because on a rival radio station, I'm not going to say which one, (laughs) we had um, the MP Charles Walker. Now, he's vice chairman of the 1922 Committee of Backbench Conservative MPs, and basically they're the knife wielders. If they want to get rid of you, they do it. But he basically said that defeat for Mrs May could trigger a general election within a matter of days or even weeks. That sounds a bit fatalistic. Is he right or is he just scaremongering, caught up in the theatre of the moment? 
you know, I'd be interested in, in, in having a bit of a back and forth here because my understanding is with regard to her position as prime minister, there's a degree to which because of attempts which have been put in place recently to to force her out uh, by backbenchers uh, within the party apparatus, she has a year before she can be challenged within the party. Um, now, the question is, can she be challenged in terms of the authority of the government uh, by the leader of the opposition? And that would, of course, if they were to lose that, uh, potentially lead to a, a, I think it's a two week uh, debate where she'd have to try and form a new government and if that didn't happen that would lead to a, a general election right? That's right. Perfect now if, the question then is if Jeremy Corbyn were to try to do that would you see as we saw before attempts by the, the Conservative Party to, to round the wagons effectively and protect uh, the Queen in this case whether they'd be quite so inclined to do that again I think you would doubt, especially when you look at the opinion poll ratings at the moment, which, if you are a, a Conservative, actually aren't that bad. Um, some opinion polls have the Conservative Party ahead by some 10 points. Uh, quite frankly, I think if you are a, uh, a, a Labour supporter, a fan of Jeremy Corbyn, you must be looking at this thinking, what have we got to do? Mm. What have we got to do to get ahead in these polls, quite frankly? Um, and I think that perhaps says something still about the lack of acceptability to to the kind of voters which which Lance and his team in New Labour were so very successful at courting in the mid-90s and getting Middle England to vote for Labour in a way that they hadn't done previously. And uh, I think, frankly, if... If your guys were in charge now, I think that uh, the Tories would be in all kinds of mess. Mm, and that's the point, isn't it, Lance, that this, this should be a golden moment for the Labour Party, that you've actually got a prime minister who's on the ropes and a, clearly doesn't have the support of her party, but it can't actually use the whole Brexit drama to its own advantage and to effectively take charge of this drama. It probably could have done, but it can't do it now and it hasn't done it over the past two years and Jeremy Corbyn has been almost completely absent from the debate about the country's future which in my view is a total dereliction of his duty as leader of the opposition but one of the reasons I don't think there'll be a general election is that neither party wants one under the present circumstances. Uh, it's almost inconceivable to imagine Theresa May calling an election and thinking that she could lead the Conservative Party into it and win it and even if she thinks she could do it her own backbenchers couldn't. Now, uh, James is right to say that under the Tory party rules, she can't be challenged formally by a no-confidence vote within her parliamentary party. But if two-thirds of her cabinet were to resign or just go to her and say, you've got to go, she'd have to go. Uh, so politics isn't always about the procedures. It can simply be about your authority and it's who's telling you you've got mm. to go that matters. But that would trigger not necessarily a general election, it would trigger a change of leadership that within the Conservative Party. a leadership election. Now, the Tories may think if we change our leaders mm -hmm. and then go for a general election and the, and the, and the Labour Party remains as divided as it is and, and in disarray, then it's a whole different ball game. But of course, that takes time. They're not going to coalesce around a leader, so there has to be an election. Mm. Would the EU be willing to allow a an extension of Article 50 in order for the Tory party Which to Which is one of the out? votes that would come up mm -hmm. if she what? loses tonight's yeah. vote. I mean, I think a lot of people are thinking that an extension uh, of Article 50, which means we don't leave on March the 29th, we leave in June or perhaps under different circumstances if there were to be a general election or another referendum, even longer than that. I mean, it's it really is uncharted mm. territory. And all the MPs who are voting against Mrs May's deal tonight know that. None of them really have a path from where we are now to where they want to be. And if there is an extension of Article 50, and, and Lance has touched on this, the mm. question is, how much of an extension do we get? Because there are practical considerations. There, is, there are European elections in May. And of course, logically, one would imagine you would need to have at least a year. But of course, that's anathema to many of these anti-EU 
MPs. They would say, hang on a minute, you're just simply trying to do this to actually keep us in by default. The challenge is, is there's an awful lot of things which are being thrown around as though it's relatively straightforward. The idea of having an extension itself is not straightforward not enough. Straightforward. And you would there need... is no straightforward. <laughs> Absolutely, there's nothing. You know, having an extension of any time period would require um, movement in Parliament itself. The, the EU clearly has problems with regard to that. Both parties in this country, most major parties, have a major problem with that. Um, when Lance was talking about the idea of, well, you know, if if a third of the cabinet or two thirds came to her and said, you know, you've got to go, etc. And I was reminded, actually, of the way in which Margaret Thatcher was removed from office. Uh, there was an interesting scenario there in which um, the, I think it was the Mori organisation told the Conservative Party, if you want to win the next general election, you've got to get rid of your leader, your policies and a third of your cabinet. Um, and of course they did. And that, that got you John Major. Uh, and, the, and the big policy reversal was the poll tax. So, you know, the great question is, are we about to see history repeating itself to some extent in the next couple of weeks? And the Tory party does have a remarkable oh. survival instinct. Yes. They, I mean, they do. Whatever you say about them, mm-hmm. they have a phenomenal survival instinct. Mm. But of course, Europe is watching this and probably mm-hmm. thinking to itself, oh my Lord, here we go again. Just when we, we've given her the chance to actually pull a rabbit out of the hat and these guys have just killed it. So, you know, what next? Yep. So what, what, what other options are there? And the other option that is there is for there to be a cross-party attempt to come up with a solution which runs huge risk for both mm, party leaders. A bit late as well, some would say. Very late in the day. It could have been done that way right from the outset, in which case it wouldn't have been with a gun to to, to their collective heads, which is the situation that we, we face at the moment. But there is, you know, there's a majority in Parliament for a softer Brexit, for, uh, which involves staying in the customs union and so on and so forth. But for Theresa May to do that, she'd risk splitting her party. Oh, dear. Let's move on now. (laughs) Different country this time. Slightly different affairs going on here. But look, starting with really one of the most powerful women in American politics, because she says she's not in favour of impeaching Donald Trump. Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House of Representatives, said impeaching the president would be divisive for the country and was only worth pursuing if the circumstances were, quote, compelling and overwhelming. Ms Pelosi's comments are in stark contrast to some of her Democratic colleagues who've been calling for Mr Trump's arraignment. She has responded by saying that Mr. Trump is just not worth it. I was tempted to put on an American accent there, but I don't think <laughs> I would. But James, me, look, obviously, sure. America, that, mm-hmm. that's your domain, your area of expertise. But hasn't Nancy Pelosi widened the generation gap between traditional Democrats like her and the new, the, the young Turks, the up and coming new left wingers who are saying, look, you know, let's just do this guy and we've got enough dirt. Let's just go for it. Uh, I can see why you'd say that. Um, And it's also very, very clear that going into the 2018 midterm elections, there were a number of those individuals, the Young Turks, as you identify them, who were adamant that they would not accept Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House. Um, It must be said, I think, in favour of uh, Speaker Pelosi, that she has come out and was seen to have done very well in terms of dealing with Donald Trump, especially over issues of the uh, the wall, the shutdown uh, and the State of the Union scenario. I think what you're seeing here is, again, there is that split between the generations, and I'm sure uh, uh, individuals on the, the, the left side of the Democratic Party w- will be up in arms about this, but what she's actually stating is is political. what's politically feasible. A lot of people are throwing the word impeachment around without any understanding about what it involves, and I saw Caroline Lucas doing this on, on Twitter quite recently, incorrectly invoking the 25th Amendment as though that had anything to do with impeachment, which it does not. Um, the House of Representatives would if the vote was held today, clearly vote to impeach Donald Trump along 
party lines if she were to allow a vote. However, it would then move to the Senate for another vote at which you need a supermajority, not a straightforward majority. And at the moment, there is simply nothing like the sort of political uh, machinations there that would get anywhere close to removing Donald Trump from office. The same as we had uh, with Bill Clinton. Yeah, and and I guess as well, Lance, that um, for any impeachment proceeding to work, as James has pointed out, it's a very complicated process, but also you'd need to have some kind of bipartisan agreement. And we have to face up to the fact that the reality of American politics is that that is not happening. There is an absence of that very quality. Yeah, so there's a parallel with what we've just been talking about in British politics. Uh, And the significant point is that authority is not draining away from Trump in the same way that it's draining away from Theresa May, so that the Republican Party would rally around him. Uh, They've got elections to win. They want to win the presidential election uh, next year. Um, So uh, there's, James is absolutely right, there isn't a hope in hell of impeachment being successful, uh, let alone um, uh, uh, actually removing Trump from office. So I think Nancy Pelosi is absolutely right uh, and that the Democrats have got to concentrate their time and energy and resources into working out how to beat Donald Trump at the next presidential election rather than uh, a, a, a suicidal attempt that really wouldn't succeed to get rid of him before them. Mm. And I guess as well, James, that you, you get a sense of frustration in these remarks because the, every time something happens in Donald Trump's life or, or the lives of his associates, the I word keeps on coming up. And Nancy Pelosi has dealt with it by being very, very con- well cautious. Is there a sense that she feels now, look, this is it, time to break out from the shadows and kill this once and for all? Well, I think that what we need to consider this is, is this. is If Mueller's report comes in mm. and there's anything absolutely catastrophic in it, then this will change. Uh, we also need to consider that what's happening in the southern district of Manhattan, again, uh, something could immediately change with regard to this. What, what we do know about Donald Trump's America is that, just like Brexit, anybody who tells you they know what's going to happen next is making it up and he's likely to be proven very, very There's wrong. So much speculation about quickly. the contents of Mueller's report and he's still Absolutely. investigating. He is indeed. And uh, I think what you see with Nancy Pelosi saying he's not worth it, is a way of actually mocking Donald Trump, which he will hate because he wants to be worth it. He wants them to go after him because if the Democrats do impeach him, all it will do is galvanise the right and almost certainly lead to his re-election in 18 months' time. Mm, so they really need her savviness. She knows that and, and her savviness is absolutely mm-hmm. right. And she's yeah. saying to the what you described as the Young Turks, basically she's saying, grow up kids, you know, we've got an important job to do here mm. um, to, to win the presidency back and this is just a distraction. And one of those young, young kids is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, interestingly enough, she appears to be backing Nancy Pelosi on this. So given the influence that she wields, I mean, she is the talk of the town. Could she in some way reconcile these two generations? That's really for, for both of you to, to yeah, answer. Yeah, I mean, I think, she's abs- I think she's absolutely right. And she's a very impressive politician from what I've seen of her. Um, and uh, I think if she has that sort of sense of realism uh, about the challenges that the party faces uh, and can combine that with what Nancy Pelosi is saying, that at least you've got in terms of generations and in a sense in terms of young radicals and, and, and more moderate uh, older Democrats, uh, a coalition of interests there, uh, which might help bring the party to 
its senses. Yeah, I'd agree with that entirely. Um, the big challenge, I think, is going to be the fact that pretty much every Democrat you meet on the street in America seems to want to run for the presidency at the moment. So you're going to have an awful lot of opinions out there um, straddling uh, the Pelosi position and the more radical one. And I think it will be it'll be instructive about the state of how power politics works in Washington to the extent to which Pelosi is able to basically rally the troops and get a unified position moving forward. Yeah, and then, of course, you've got liberal billionaires who are chucking their money into this and they're they're calling for Trump to be impeached. I mean, what difference could that have in actually tilting things in spite of Nancy Pelosi's best endeavours to actually cap the fire? Well, it depends the extent to which they want to get their hands dirty and get involved in the fight. Obviously, the, the best way that billionaires can actually affect politicians is not by running for office themselves. It's by either contributing or withholding funds. So if they decide that they want to start playing banker with regard to uh, any of these positions, uh, then they'll have a very powerful position to do so. If, however, they try and jump into the race, and we've notably seen a lot of them, such as Bloomberg, pulling away from that position, uh, then they, all they risk doing is splitting the left and again, almost certainly contributing to Donald Trump's re-election. Okay, well, you're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, Lance Price and James Boys. And coming up next, Britain is the latest country to ban the Boeing 737 MAX 8 from operating in or over its airspace as a precautionary measure. Tune in now to Mitty Class by Chanel on Monocle 24. Join us over five fascinating episodes as we explore the craftsmanship, precision, artistry and design philosophy of La Maison Chanel and its family of collaborators. In the coming weeks, we'll be sitting down with the likes of Farrell Williams and Lady Amanda Harlick, but this week it's the turn of Chanel President Bruno Pavlovsky, who sits down with Tyler Brule to tell him more about the inner workings of the fashion house. They want to see uh, the behind the scene of uh, what we are doing. They want to better understand what we are doing. It's not just for uh, the beauty of the product. Download the conversation at monocle.com via our app and other channels or on Chanel's 355 podcast at iTunes. Mitte Class by Chanel on Monocle 24. Listen now. Still with me are Lance Price and James Boyce. Now, Britain has become the latest country to ban the Boeing 737 MAX from operating in or over UK airspace as a precautionary measure. Well, the decision comes after an Ethiopian Airlines plane crashed on Sunday, killing 157 passengers. It was the second fatal accident involving the 737 MAX 8 model in less than five months. Well, Britain now joins Singapore, China, Malaysia and Australia in grounding the jets, although US aviation officials say the aircraft is safe. Let's look at the reaction, Lance, because... We don't know what caused this crash. Obviously, they have to recover the black box and examine its contents, etc. And the US aviation authorities insist that they should still continue using this plane. But some people will say, well, why not err on the side of caution and hold off until we know exactly what was responsible for this tragic accident? I think most people would say that there are, you know, other other aircraft are available. Um, you don't have to uh, fly these things, um, and I think the uh, reaction of the American uh, uh, aviation authorities is is extraordinary uh, in, in this uh, context. Um, uh, Europe, the European Union, as well as Britain, and now other uh, major countries have. Uh, uh, 
ban the plane from flying. I think that's only going to uh, grow. So if the plane is only flying domestically within the United States or to a, on a few uh, basic routes, basically, um, it's uh, it's 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 time to it's time to bring them all. Um, out of service and um, you know safe planes don't fall out of the sky and kill everybody on board shortly after takeoff so there is clearly a problem here there's been plenty of speculation about what that problem might be and that basically this plane is too clever for its own good um, and that in order to um, maximize fuel efficiency they've made all sorts of complicated design changes to the plane which I don't fully understand but in order to get the thing off the ground apparently in theory this thing shouldn't be able to fly at all so they're using very clever computers to try to uh, overcome gravity and, and enable this plane to fly and that the the the, uh, the technology is too clever by half and it's clearly failed and it's supposed to be environmentally friendly as well in, in keeping with the, the the new demands of the of the green age but but james the the u.s aviation authorities would say look we're doing this because um we're taking guidance mm-hmm. from boeing but then at the risk of sounding very cynical isn't there also a commercial component to this given that boeing is a very important part of the commercial landscape in the United States. And clearly for the government not to back it, it, it sends out the wrong message. Yes. There's several things to, con- to consider here. Um, a, I, I, I encourage everybody to go out and, and find out exactly how much of the world's percentage of airline air travel happens within the continental United States. It is a huge percentage of global um, air traffic. Uh, then you ask, well, how much of that is carried by Boeing? How much of it will be dependent upon this aircraft in particular? And then you bring the politics into this. Boeing is, we were talking a minute ago about billionaire contributors. You know, Boeing is a huge defense contractor. It contributes massive figures to uh, political races at all points. It is notable, therefore, uh, that of all the international aviation authorities, it's the FAA uh, which appears to be dragging its feet along these lines. And you have to raise that very awkward question, which you rightly pose, as the extent to which this is about money, finance and politics, and potentially at the expense of people's lives. Mm, and I guess, I guess, Lance, as well, that given all of those factors, if more countries refuse to use this plane, could that effectively force the hand of the US, the US aviation authorities? That they, they may well be forced to actually say, look, let's just mothball this for the moment until we get to the bottom of what's happened here. It'll put enormous pressure on the American authorities, but ultimately it will be consumer boycotts, I think, that will, that will do it. Um, and now, people may already be booked on these planes and uh, make a decision about whether to get on them. But when they're making future bookings, uh, they, I think it's highly likely that there will be a consumer boycott of them and that would force uh, Boeing to take them out of service. Mm, and Sorry, go on, James. One of the problems with that, though, and I would agree in many ways, but the challenge is that is at what point will people find out what aircraft they're flying on? Because they will book upon particular uh, airlines, no doubt mm. about it, and they'll book upon and a certain cost. route and cost. Uh, but at what point are people going to know which particular vehicle? Well, they'll find out almost certainly uh, when they arrive at the airport to check in. Now, on some apps, you can say, that this is the configuration, etc., and people might start booking away at that point but an awful lot of these people you know when you look at how many flights there are in the US and internal flights are like buses in America we see flights very different here in London and I think in, in outside of the US but internal flights in America happen on such a regular occurrence you don't need passports you rock up you get on them it's like getting on a bus or a train here um, and just taking these things out of service unfortunately is not as straightforward as it might sound because of course the fleet will be dependent upon these new purchases 
the older planes are going out of circulation, out of usage, then the backlog that that would cause would be catastrophic for internal air flight as well as international uh, air flight, I'd suggest. Mm. And, and certainly, Lance, the final point on this is that, look, I mean, Boeing has, has found itself in, in this awful situation. It's damage limitation. How do, you, how do you go about handling a situation of this magnitude? Because it is quite extraordinary, because comparisons will obviously be made with other accidents involving the same, manu- well, the same, the same type of plane, the same manufacturer. Yeah, and crisis management theory says that you get out in front of it. So therefore, you do even more than the public seem to be demanding. And the very least that the public would be demanding is to take them out of service. So I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Boeing doesn't feel obliged to take that step in its own interest. Really a mistake basically yes okay then well let's stay with the aviation theme in our final story because a pilot was forced to turn his plane back shortly after takeoff when a passenger realized she had left her baby behind in the airport lounge air traffic controllers were stunned when the pilot who was flying from saudi arabia to malaysia made the request well, it's not the first time a flight has been diverted midair in 2013 an american airlines flight from los angeles to new york was diverted to kansas city after a passenger refused to stop singing whitney houston's i will always love you <laughs> he could have been singing something else i guess <laughs> It's but, pretty offensive, everybody. Yeah, I will always love you. I, th- I think I would have backed the pilot yeah. on that. But I mean, I, look, I can understand forgetting a case, a book, or something. But a baby? I mean, that—that's the first evening. Of me. <laughs> well, don't forget. <laughs> back in, we—he—he uh, he, um, he has many reasons to be uh, remembered uh, as a less than entirely uh, adroit politician. But David Cameron, back in. <laughs> 2012, I think it was, when he was Prime Minister, that left his daughter in a pub. Yes. His eight-year-old daughter forgot all <laughs> oh, about and left yes. him in a pub uh, and whizzed <laughs> off wherever he was going. And um, his wife said, where is she? And he yes. had to go back and pick her up. So... <laughs> It does. <laughs> but that was in the pub, not in the airport lounge. It does happen. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah. what, 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 Where are you safe? Well, well, Nowhere. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, what, could, have, you, have you guys ever left anything behind? I mean, okay, not a baby, but ever left anything behind, which is very important on a plane? The worst or? one for me. And again, I mean, it, it fits in with what we were discussing earlier. I was on holiday in Finland, and I was on a very remote island on the west coast, southwest coast of Finland, um, and I left my passport in the hotel room. I took an overnight ferry to Helsinki and it was only in the airport departure land in Helsinki that I realised I didn't have my passport with me. It would take me two days to get it back physically. Oh my gosh. I was on a flight from Finland to the south of France via the Netherlands and I decided, and my heart was in my throat as you can imagine, decided to take a risk. I got on the plane without a passport and (laughs) nobody asked me for any ID on any of those you flights. You were testing because, airport security. Because <laughs> I was flying within Schengen, where you don't ah, have to have a passport. Perfect. And I knew that, and it was, a, it was a hell of a risk. I could have been asked for it. That was a hell of a risk. And that just goes to show the merits of some of the institutions of the European Union. I knew you get it back. To, I knew you get it back to Brexit eventually. I mean, I'm, I'm going to end this by just saying that the one instant which didn't happen to me, but I was there when it happened, um, when my husband was mayor of Surrey Heath, that well, when he was actually handed over the job to somebody else, the mayor left her badge behind. I mean, the huge change. She left it behind in the hotels. So we had to go back and get it, and then fly back from Germany to London. So um, <laughs> Surrey Heath managed to retain its chain. But there you have it, our aviation tales.
And that brings us to the end of today's show. Lance Price and James Boyce, thank you both for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Carlota Rebello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Nick Monisa. Studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Tell us how you listen to our news programmes at monocle.com forward slash M24 survey. 1900 hours? It is Monocle on Design and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That is 1800 London time. I'm Juliet Foster. Goodbye. <laughs>